needed. Scripture reading tonight comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. If you would take out a songbook, we do still have those here. We don't use them as much anymore, but if you would turn to song number 560, getting a little bit of feedback out here. I know sometimes they can't hear it in in the sound booth, so we like to at least let them know. Number 560, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" As you're aware, our Vacation Bible School starts tomorrow tomorrow evening, and everyone is welcome to attend. Certainly the, the Vacation Bible School part is, is geared towards the younger children, but there are classes for adults in, uh, in the Spanish auditorium, the small auditorium, as, as was mentioned this morning. And so we'd encourage you all to, to be here if, if you have time, any of the nights, Monday through Wednesday. And as we think about the theme that is before us, you've seen the, the flyers, the, the banners in the, uh, in the foyer that say, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," and it's very colorful, and lots of, lots of uh, candy and all kinds of goodies on, on the display there. I want us to take a few moments this evening to, to examine the words of, of the song, the lyrics of the song, from which we have, uh, ha- have chosen to have our theme for the week. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Each of the nights, each week during VBS, we'll, we'll talk about a different idea or a different concept and reason why it's, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. But tonight, let's look at what the song writer uh, wanted to, us to think about and what, what we should think about today as we sing this song as well. Consider with me that we won't have a PowerPoint. It looks like there was uh, some, some issues going on there behind the screen, but you have, you'll have everything that you need here uh, for the PowerPoint as, as far as that's concerned because all of our points will be taken directly from, from the song itself. Consider first and foremost, as we look at verse number one, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord.'" So we consider this first verse. I want us to open up our Bibles to John chapter number 4. Everyone, if you will, turn with me to John chapter number 4. And I want us to examine the account in which there's a nobleman who comes to Jesus who has a sick son at home. And he desperately desires that Jesus would, would heal his son, that his, his son's fever had progressed to the point that he is nearing death. And I want us to consider John chapter number 4, verses 46 through 53. Let's read together. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. 
Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way, and, he was, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And he asked of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Consider with me as we work through this account some things that we observe in the progression of what takes place in this story, in this account. In verse 46, we see that the nobleman had heard what Jesus had done at the wedding feast at Cana. He was aware of Jesus' power over the natural realm to be able to turn water into wine. And he was intrigued by this, and he reckoned in his mind. He thought about the fact that if Jesus had that power, maybe he could also save his son who was seemingly lying on his deathbed. And so after hearing this, he makes his way from his hometown at Capernaum, and he goes to where Jesus was. And it's there that he goes with a particular intention. And that intention that this man has in verses 47 and verse 49 is to convince Jesus to come from where he was and to go to his home where his young boy lay. And he wanted Jesus to come from, his, from this place, from point A, and go to point B and to save his son. But we see that Jesus tells him something different than he expected in verse number 50. Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. Put yourself in the shoes of the nobleman. In your mind, you had, had approached Jesus with this particular request, and you want him so desperately to come, knowing that he was at least in location on the, the miracle of the, of the wedding feast. He was there at the place, and he's thinking maybe in his mind that Jesus needs to be there. And so he wants Jesus to come from point A to point B and to come and to heal his son. But instead, Jesus says, your son lives go your way what would your response be as we said put yourself in the shoes of this nobleman would you not perhaps maybe say no no jesus i want you to come with me please come but notice what is said what's the response of this man notice verse 50 again so the man believed the word that jesus spoke to him and he went his way some translations render it this way the man took Jesus at his word. He took Jesus at his word. Very similar phrase to what we sing in the first verse of, of this song. Tis so sweet to, to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. You see what is the outcome? We think about the fact, obviously, the man's son is healed as we've already read. Just as Jesus said he would be. But as this man believe the words that Jesus spoke as he took him at his word and he saw that Jesus had the power even from a, diff a different place to make sure that his son would be healed, what is the outcome? Notice that he himself, verse 52, believed and his whole household. When we see Jesus' words come to fruition, when we see his promises fulfilled time and time again, our trust in Him is only deepened. It's only strengthened. It only gets sweeter as the years go by, as they say. 
When we see Jesus' promises coming true, when we know that we can trust His Word, when we see over and over and over again that the Word of God, that Jesus' words are to be trusted, are valid, they're true, then our trust in Him is sweeter and sweeter. Why is it that we can trust in Jesus' words? Interestingly, this morning, both, both John and, and KJ in their lessons spoke about some of these verses as, as we'll consider. They mentioned as we think about the fact that Jesus' words, first and foremost, are, are from the Father. They're from the Father. John chapter 12 and verse 49. For I have not spoken of my own authority, Jesus says, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that this command is everlasting life, that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. But not only are the words of Jesus, the words from the Father Himself, from, from God the Father, but they're also eternal. Matthew chapter 24, verse number 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but by no means my words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. They're eternal. We could even say that they are from the very beginning as Jesus is God Himself. So from, from the very beginning of time into eternity, and even before time, Jesus' words are everlasting. But not only that, Jesus' words are a foundation upon which to build. You think about Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, and the parable of the wise and the foolish man, the wise man that built his house upon the rock and the foolish man that built his house upon the sand. Notice what Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the words that I say, whoever hears them and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Jesus' words are from the Father. They are eternal. They are a foundation upon which to build. They are extremely important because they will judge us. John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word which I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus' words are from the Father. They are eternal. They are a foundation upon which to build. They will judge us. And ultimately, they are life. They are life. Jesus said of His own words in John 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. But the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Ray read from just a moment ago at the beginning of our service from Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, particularly verses 16 and 17, in which Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, encourages them to let the words of Christ dwell in them richly. Why is this the case? Paul's writing the church to, the, to the church at Colossae because they had many of the Christians there had been worried and concerned about their salvation and whether or not they were truly saved because there were some that were teaching them things that saying, saying maybe they don't have the full revelation of knowledge and everything that they need to know. Their, their joy and their, their peace was being stolen from them. But in the verse preceding, verses 16 and 17, verse number 15, Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. How do we do that? Paul, he says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. The words of Christ. 
The words that are eternal, the words that will judge us, the words that are foundational, if we want to have a peace that passes all understanding, if we want to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, we need to accept the words of Jesus and allow them to dwell in us richly. He goes on to say, one of the ways we can do that is through singing, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You think about what we do as we come together and we sing to each other, sometimes the very words of Christ. And of course, all the words of, of Scripture are the words of Christ, as He is God. But as you think about what we're doing, we're allowing the words of Christ to dwell in us richly, and it helps us to be encouraged to follow after Him, and we see the sweetness of trusting in Jesus. We consider also verse number 2. The song continues, Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3. We were just in John chapter number 4. Turn a page back. Sometimes we may recognize that Jesus was a special man. We may grant it to Jesus that he, there was something unique about him. He was a great teacher, some might say. But maybe we're hesitant about doing exactly what it is that Jesus expects because maybe it seems foreign to to us or maybe it seems foreign to what the rest of the religious world might teach but consider if we're going to take Jesus at his word as the nobleman did with regard to his son if we're going to believe exactly what Jesus says and not question it and doubt it and and, and cast shadow upon it a shadow of doubt upon it then we need to listen to even Jesus' words in John chapter number 3 in which another man maybe was questioning or wondering about some of the words of Jesus and that which he taught. This man's name was Nicodemus. This man was a Pharisee. This man was a ruler of the Jews and he came to Jesus by night, verse number 2. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unequivocally, Jesus is talking about baptism. He's talking about the need for... Submission to baptism. And as you think about later on what takes place in Colossians, as we just mentioned a moment ago, in fact, let's turn there. I want us to consider what Paul writes to the church at Colossae in regards to baptism. What does Paul say about what baptism does? We just talked about the fact that these people were questioning and wondering about whether or not their salvation was sure and could be relied upon. What does Paul say to these Christians? What does Paul say to these people that are doubting? Notice verse number 12. Let's begin in verse number 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. In which, in baptism, you also were raised with Him. You were raised with Him. But notice the next phrase. Through faith in the working of God. Through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. 
In other words, when we submit ourselves in baptism, we're not just demonstrating something outwardly to other people. That is, as some people say, an outward sign of an inward grace. It's not found in Scripture anywhere. But rather, what we're doing in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 12, Paul says, is we're submitting and trusting that God is working on our behalf in the waters of baptism. What is the working that's taking place there? He's putting that old man of sin away and rising up, raising up a new creature. A new creature. Read it with me again. We're buried with him in baptism in which, in baptism, you were also raised with him. How is it that we're done? How is, that, how is it that that is done? How is it that being baptized allows us to be raised? It's not the physical act of getting wet, because if that were the case, we would just dunk someone in the water every chance that we had, right? What is it? What is it about baptism? It's the faith, the faith that you have that God is working in that moment to transform you from the old man of sin into a new creature. And so when we sing, oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. We need to trust His cleansing blood at the point of baptism. But not only at the point of baptism, but also... As you consider 1 John chapter number 1, verses 5 through 9, particularly in verse number 8, in which Jesus, uh, John says that if we can walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us. The church at Colossae needed to know that if they had submitted to God in baptism and trusted in their faith to the working of God in that baptism, that if they remained in the light and they did not go to the darkness, as it were, if they, sometimes as I use this analogy, are climbing the ladder, maybe they might slip down a rung or two, but as long as they are still climbing and trying to stay on that ladder, i.e. the Christian walk, that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us. What a sweet and blessed thought to trust in the blood of Jesus, knowing that even after baptism I'll never be perfect knowing that after baptism I still will stumble and trip and fall, but if I just continue to try to stay in the light and walk as Jesus would have me to walk as best as I can, then the blood is continually cleansing me. What a blessed thought. But then in verse number 3, the song goes, Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease." Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. When I read this verse, when I sing this verse, I'm reminded of Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, in which Jesus said, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This, very recently, I, was, I had to go to downtown Houston. And I'm, I'm just now really kind of learning the Katy area, right, as far as roads are concerned. And I had to go to the, the tax office because I was trying to move something over in my name. And, and I get about halfway there. I, I, before I left, I just punched it in the GPS and hit go, right, and on the phone. Get about halfway there, and my phone just completely turns off. 
and it's just frozen. And I'm just in the middle of driving on I-10, cars all around me, and I have no idea where to go. Absolutely no idea. I didn't, I didn't look beforehand. I just trusted in the GPS, right? And I was flying blind in that moment. I mean, literally, I, I had no idea where the place was. When you think about trusting in Jesus and following Him, so many people want to be their own GPS, as it were. So many people want to live a life unto themselves and to do what is fulfilling to them, their own desires and to be an individual that is their own God, as it were. And they want to be their own GPS, but you know what is so sweet? To just trust in Jesus. To be the trailblazer. You know what's great about Jesus as the trailblazer? Is that I don't have to bushwhack. I can just follow right behind Him. Because He's already blazed the path for me. It doesn't mean that my life is going to be easy. And that I'm not going to have hurdles and and difficulties and times to overcome. But Jesus' way is unequivocally the easiest way. And the best way in this life. Easy, I don't mean by maybe if you're comparing it to things of this life that say, I don't, I'm not going to challenge myself to be better, but easiest in the sense that it reveals and, and, and allows in my life the best of circumstances. Maybe not what the world might think, but in truth they are. In truth they are. So when we think about just from sin and self to cease, I'm reminded of Luke 9, 23 and 24. I'm also reminded of Mark chapter 10, verse 21 in which the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He asks him what else he needs to do. And he he tells Jesus that he's done all the things that Jesus listed out. And then Jesus says this, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the cross and follow me. When we think about Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and denying self, We might think about Mark chapter 10 and verse 21 and the need to deny stuff. Just the extra stuff in this life. The the physical things. The the things that, that draw me away from Jesus. When I trust in Jesus, I can I can no longer have to worry and think about. I can cease from sin, from stuff, and from self. Think about James chapter number one. Verses 14 and 15, James says, But each one, when is tempted, when he is tempted, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When I trust in Jesus, it's so sweet because it's just from sin and stuff, as we might add, and self to cease. But when we think about sin, what is it about sin that's so attractive? Why is it that people want to be involved in things that are not right? It really boils down to, you might say this, this desire, as James said in James 1, the desire to seek fulfillment, the things that I want, the desires that I have. But when we trust in Jesus, we realize that fulfillment is found and that our dignity is wrapped up in Him and not in self. That our identity is who Jesus says we are. But not only that, that fulfillment is found because His words are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honeycomb. Psalm 19 and verse number 10. You think about lots of candy that's going to be decorated in the fellowship hall this week and it's sweet and we understand why we're using that illustration. The psalmist says that 
His words are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honeycomb. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. We also realize the fulfillment is found when we're not listening to the same lie that Satan told Eve, which was that there is fulfillment in going against God. But when we truly trust in Jesus, when we truly follow Him, and when we say, I'm going to cease or, or de- put to death sin, as Colossians chapter 3 talks about, I'm no longer going to do that. When I trust in Jesus, it is so sweet. But finally, our fourth verse, consider this. I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that Thou art with me, wilt be with me to the end. As you think about this particular verse, in James chapter 2, verse number 23, I'm reminded of the fact that Abraham was called the friend of God. And it's interesting to think about that relationship that existed between Abraham and God and that friendship that existed there. And you know what? You and I can very much be a friend of Jesus, a friend of God. Notice the shift in the lyrics of verse number 4. Before it was a, a, a declaration but the change, there's a change in address and who is being spoken to. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee. As opposed to the first three verses being a declaration of maybe friends and family and those of this world. But the shift in verse number four, it says, I'm so glad I learned to trust you, Jesus. I'm so glad that I've learned to trust this precious Savior. Yes, he's my Savior, but also he's my friend. Isn't it neat to think about Jesus as our friend? As I said, yes, He is our Savior, and we ought not to to diminish that and recognize and and hold Him in reverence and awe and respect. But there's also this element of friendship with Jesus, as Jesus Himself says. Turn your Bibles finally this evening to John chapter 15. John chapter number 15, in which Jesus is talking to His disciples, and this is directly spoken to them, but we can, in many ways... Apply these own things to our own lives as we are His disciples. As you think about John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17, there's a particular verse here that seems maybe kind of of odd to the world. In, In verse number 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. If we just read that on the surface, does that sound like friendship to you? It really sounds like a friendship, like maybe from, from elementary school, right? Like, hey, you're gonna, you can be my friend, but you got to do whatever I say. And if we just read it on the surface and just look at verse 14 out of context, we may be wondering, how is Jesus my friend if I just have to do whatever he says? Isn't that just kind of maybe manipulative or, or something like that? But when we read the entire passage, it becomes more clear what Jesus is saying. Look at verse number 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Notice verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And there's our verse. We read a moment ago, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Not in a manipulative sense. Jesus isn't trying to hold these things over us as though he is commanding them from a superiority complex. 
Though he could because he is God and he could command and demand anything he wants of us. But rather, Jesus here, that's not his underlying motivation. Rather, he wants us to be saved. He wants us to, to find joy and peace in him. The things that Jesus commands of us aren't just because he has fun and takes delight in being a min, you know, the, the one that controls the, 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 uh, the doll that, you know, being st- standing up there and the one that's constantly being the one that is pulling all the strings. Rather, that God and Jesus love us and want what's best for us and want us to find joy and happiness in life, everlasting life. It's revealed particularly by verse number 13. In which Jesus says that greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. If there was ever evidence of Jesus' friendship, it's this verse. And that he laid down his life for us. And it's not just that Jesus is a short-term friend. As God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse number 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Jesus could say to us today, The beauty of of trusting Jesus is not just that I can trust Him enough to follow Him in the right direction, or and it's not just that I can trust Him to wash me. It's not just that I can trust Him in a life that denies self and, and, and stuff and sin, but rather it's also that when I learn to truly trust Him, I can have the confidence of a friend, a friend that's with me and by my side both now and in eternity. Friends come and go, don't they? You think about the friends that you've had over the course of your life. Perhaps they've changed so many times, maybe because of distance, maybe because of disagreement. But when we think about Jesus, He's a friend to you when you're a young person at school and you are not fitting in. He's a friend to the college student that is trying to stand up for Jesus when he's being taught falsehoods. He's a friend to the young person that's out on their own for the first time living by themselves. He's a friend to the single person who is trying to navigate the idea of living a life without a companion. He's a friend to the married person who's been betrayed by their spouse. He's a friend to the couple who's desperately trying to have kids but cannot. He's a friend to the widow or the widower after the love of their life has passed on. The reality is that Jesus is our greatest friend. He's a friend that even when our parents and our spouse, our kids, our lifelong friends, none of them are really ever truly in every moment of our life, but Jesus, Jesus is When we let him be, he's the only true friend and he's the only friend that will ever be with us till the very end in every moment, every facet of our life. As we conclude, I want us to notice the refrain. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. I wasn't aware of of the background of this song until studying for this lesson, but in 1875, the author, Louisa Stead, had just been married and gave birth to a daughter, and the family went on a trip vacationing at the beach of Long Island, and it was there that a young boy was drowning. And in a moment of heroics, this author's husband, Mr. Stead, as we'll call him, ran out into the ocean to save this young boy and in the process of doing so, lost his life. She became a widow, Miss Stead did. A widow and a single mother. 
It was just a short time after this that Louisa wrote these words, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Because after that, she was certainly left in poverty for a time, not having a husband to help take care of her, to help provide for her. And yet she pins these words, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him, o'er and o'er, or over and over. In other words, over and over again, the things that I've experienced in my life, she says, have proved that He is trustworthy. When we trust Him in this life, what we're doing is we are proving that Jesus is trustworthy, that it is sweet to trust in Him no matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulty. And then notice again the final words. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. I'm not sure that I can say for sure what she is saying here, but what I'm hearing the author say is this. God's grace has been bestowed upon me to learn the preciousness of trusting in Jesus. I'm not suggesting that she's asking for more difficult trials to go through as she had lost the love of her life. But it's through those trials that she has learned and had learned the blessedness of trusting in Jesus. And in essence, she seems to be writing, desiring for her trust to grow even more. What a testament of faith. Are you a Christian tonight? If you are or if you aren't, it doesn't matter. The question, it does matter. The question is, do you trust in Him? Do you truly, truly trust in Him enough to follow Him, to take Him at His word, to trust His cleansing blood, to cease from self and from sin, to be able to call Jesus your friend? We talked about baptism earlier. All it takes is just trusting in God's working the waters of baptism being plunged into the water for the forgiveness of your sins, having your sins washed away, Acts 22, verse number 16. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe in times past you have trusted in Jesus, but your trust has waned, and you want to experience the sweetness of that trust once again. We want you to make that right tonight. If there's anything we can do for you, won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know that says the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, Just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing cleansing blood, Jesus, Jesus.
trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that Thou art with me, with